Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. People want to move out of this corona world. And this is the moment for Europe. The moment for Europe to lead the way from this fragility towards a new vitality. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, suffering with a slight cold, but it's definitely, thankfully, only a cold. And it was a big week here in Brussels as we had one of the set-piece events of the EU's political year, the State of the Union Address, by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. We'll analyse that speech in just a moment, look at von der Leyen's plans and priorities, and ask what the speech tells us about von der Leyen's emerging political identity in her first year as Commission Chief. Later, we'll hear from Ronald Gidwitz, the US Ambassador to Belgium, who's now also America's acting representative to the European Union. We'll hear his thoughts on trade, China and the upcoming presidential election in November. But first... Let's bring in our podcast panel. So Matt is out this week, but joining us is our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hey there. And Reem, as usual, is in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, hello. Um, so we're going to concentrate today on the big kind of set piece in the European political calendar, at least in the in the Brussels bubble political calendar, if you like, although this speech normally takes place in Strasbourg. And that's the State of the European Union address by uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. This is a fairly recent tradition in the EU, right? It started in 2010. And it was obviously an attempt to kind of uh, mimic the, the US version to an extent to create this big event, uh, a kind of showpiece for the Commission President to lay out their agenda. Um, but what did you think, David, in terms of, of what Ursula von der Leyen was trying to, to do with this speech? What was the kind of, was there an overarching theme? What, what kind of message was she trying to present? Well, we should also keep in mind uh, the, the sort of threshold personal moment this was for her. She's the first Commission President in uh, decades who hasn't been a head of state or government. So this is a new role for her. And this was her first State of the European Union speech. And so she had to stand up there and speak for the executive body. And she's never done that before. Obviously, she's doing it in a crisis moment with the ongoing uh, coronavirus pandemic, but also coming off a very, very big achievement. As I discussed with our, our colleague, uh, colleague Florian Eder, you know, in a way, she's already won the contest of which of the recent commission presidents has done more to federalize and bring the union closer together by winning approval of this $1.8 trillion budget and recovery package with this unprecedented amount of uh, joint debt. So she got up there and 
I think gave what was quite an impressive speech in a, in a nonpartisan sense, starting out understanding the human element, the human toll of this pandemic, and speaking first about the frontline healthcare workers. Their stories also reveal a lot about the state of our world and the state of our union. They show the power of humanity and the sense of mourning which will live long in our society. And they exposed And then pivoted to, to her vision of a post-COVID EU with more health powers that are obviously needed in case of future emergencies. So for me, it is crystal clear we need to build a stronger European health union. It is time to do that. With plans for how that big budget and recovery fund will be used, uh, hammering again her top policy priorities, which she had set out before uh, the pandemic hit of uh, fighting climate change and driving digital innovation, and, and really moving through a wide range of European issues, ending with what I thought was the most genuine part of her speech, some real passion about fighting racism and discrimination. I will not rest when it comes to building a union of equality, a union where you can be who you are and love who you want without fear and recrimination. Uh, speaking out uh, both against racism in the EU institutions, but also against any discrimination based on sexual orientation or identity and a clear jab at Poland where some uh, municipalities have attempted to enact legislation that's seen as creating kind of gay-free zones, whatever the specifics. It's obviously there were homophobic overtones to all of that. And she said this has no place um, in this European Union and she'll never stop uh, fighting against uh, that kind of bigotry and inequality. Because being yourself is not your ideology. It is your identity. And no one can ever take it away. So I want to be crystal clear. LGBTQI-free zones are humanity-free zones, and they have no place in our union. Right. And Reem, obviously, one of, the, one of the ideas behind this kind of set-piece speech is it, it's a moment to attract attention. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt to try and kind of seize the agenda a bit and, and create or give a platform for the Commission President to kind of speak to Europe as a whole, even though she's speaking to uh, the European Parliament. So a couple of questions for you. First of all, how much coverage, how much reaction was there to this speech in France? And, and was there anything in particular that jumped out at you from the speech? There was almost no media coverage of the speech yesterday. It wasn't uh, streamed online. It wasn't highlighted uh, as it was happening. There was no French media that, for example, set up a live blog the way we we did. And granted, what Politico does is unique in the European media sphere. But still, uh, you know, there was none of that. And in fact, this morning, the uh, French Europe minister was on French radio, uh, and he brought this up, and he uh, said that he was was quite upset that the French media hadn't covered it and hadn't given it sort of the importance that it warranted. And he then went uh, and before the European Affairs uh, Committee at the French Parliament. And actually, one of the French MPs said, you know, we really should find a way to basically make French media cover these European events more, which is 
an interesting and slightly problematic um, thing to propose. Um, I was struck by by two things. You know that that speech to me was about basically, in essence, European sovereignty. Right? It was about European strategic autonomy in various different ways. But these words never. She never uttered these words, strategic autonomy. Also, she didn't talk about defense at all. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting actually because that was the original buzzword of this commission. Was uh, she called it a geopolitical commission? And as you say, Reem, I don't think the word geopolitics was mentioned once there. Although geopolitics were definitely in the speech, but it was interesting that she had kind of dropped that slogan. Uh, of course, you know we have had a pandemic. Lots has happened in the meantime. What's striking is that she's a former German defense minister, yeah, exactly. and I understand what that brings. And she doesn't talk about defense. Whereas Juncker well, in think, 2016, yeah, Juncker in 2016 talked about the European. European Defence Fund. Yeah, it is interesting that, and I think one of the I, one of the challenges of this speech, I think, and David, you know, come, come in right after me here, is in a sense, uh, and David alluded to it already. We've had the big moment, and the big moment was included this big recovery fund, but it also included the EU's regular seven-year budget. So it's not like a prime minister who can set out at the beginning of their term or the beginning of the year and say, I'm going to devote an extra X or Y to defence. That's been determined. The budget is set for the next seven years on this stuff. And the European Defence Fund, which was meant to be the kind of flagship of a new European approach to defence, it didn't get, you know, the level of funding that the Commission wanted it to have. So, yeah, there were definitely elements there missing. And I think that is part of the challenge, isn't it, David, is, is that there are some things that she can't influence. She can't necessarily pull a big rabbit out of the hat because of the, the constraints of, of the budget. So, in a sense, it seemed to me that she went for a lot of, you know, what you might call medium-sized stories, but she didn't have one big splashy thing that would have broken through and made headlines in France, in Germany, in other places around Europe. Right. But I think, you know, they had that splashy moment, obviously, in July. And, you know, I'm, I'm the first one to be super tough on a lot of the folks that we cover every day. And we were asking some of these questions of her top advisors before the speech. Uh, who was she speaking to, for instance? Who did she see as her audience? What would she say about geopolitics? And one answer we got on the geopolitical front, Reem, was that she doesn't need to say it over and over again. It speaks for itself. And I think if you do go through the speech and look at her lines on China, on transatlantic relations in the US, on Russia, on human rights, uh, there were some very strong uh, elements of her geopolitical framework. At the same time, I would really give them credit uh, this time for this speech in uh, not just reading the room, but reading the world. It's a different planet that we're living on after this pandemic, and it's not over yet. And so I don't think that any leader who is still in the throes of this coronavirus situation that is uncertain, an economic crisis of unprecedented proportions that is still not fully felt they don't know the, the depths, how bad this second wave of infections will be to come in and start talking about a European army, you know, the buzzwords that, that Juncker has addressed, things that we know that she believes in as a former defense minister, as someone who is uh, very much uh, focused on uh, European security and defense policy. I don't think that her audience, whoever they are, has the appetite for that at this moment. What they needed to hear and what she, uh, one theme was fragility, how fragile Everyone realizes human life is, the world is, as she made it a, a metaphor for the political uh, union in Europe, that everybody has had to sacrifice putting on masks, social distancing for the collective good. 
and sending that message to the EU member states that they have had to sacrifice and need to sacrifice more of their own sovereignty for the collective good. And I think that Clement Bon may be more upset uh, that there wasn't a bigger audience for France in this speech than Ursula von der Leyen, because as long as Clement Bone was listening, I think she's okay. She had some very clear messages for the European officials in the national capitals around the EU that they need to step up. They need to realize that the EU is never better or more necessary in a crisis, and that they did mess up a bunch of them at the start of this, slamming borders closed, hoarding uh, protective gear, all this stuff. And the EU did move in, not that it didn't make mistakes of, of its own, it certainly did, but has pushed. And the only solution to that was to get everybody on the same page and continue working toward that. On Clément Bonne, of course, he's listening mm. to Ursula von der Leyen. I mean, he speaks to her quite regularly. But you know, there is also a need for European citizens to listen to the president of the European Commission. And that's where it's a miss. Right. And also the point which had got some uh, francophones up in arms is also she made it quite difficult uh, to give, you know, the French media a nice, easy French soundbite to play on the evening news or whatever, because she didn't speak very much in French. Yeah, I believe it was 63 minutes in English and only three minutes and 50 seconds in French. Okay, wow. Somebody's done. Someone's had the stopwatch out. <laughs> do, we, do we have the count on German? That's actually the count. Yes. And on German, it's nine minutes and a half. And that's a count that we published in a piece on Politico that our readers should read. Right, where we broke down, kind of did a textual analysis. Exactly. Um, but I wonder also, as you say, David, it's interesting because this is Ursula von der Leyen. It was her first State of the Union speech. She's someone who did not campaign to be president of the European Commission. She was kind of pulled out of the hat by EU leaders at a, a summit we all covered at great length uh, a bit more than a year ago. And so I feel like as time goes on, we are uh, discovering a bit more of her sort of political identity and her views on things that she perhaps didn't have to address as as a defence minister. You know, where would you put her on the political spectrum or where would you put this speech? Well, one, it's, it's an interesting thing to continue the contrast with her predecessor, Jean-Claude Juncker. And we had a fun feature uh, on our political site by our colleague Cornelius Hirsch about uh, with a word cloud and looking at the difference in language between her and her predecessor. I mean, politically, we know she is of the center right, uh, she is definitely uh, not of, of the the right wing of that center right in Germany. Yeah, I think that really but, came across in the speech, right? I, I've, go ahead, go ahead. But that's one of the things that she's there. She's more center than right in this speech, that's for sure. She's more center than right. She knows her audience and, and the constituencies, and that the Parliament, the European Parliament, is more equally divided. So she was careful to have some you know, mention of some really important policy priorities for, for example, the Social Democrats talking about a minimum wage. But again, going back to the comparisons, let's remember historic uh, presidency in many ways, including the first woman as president of the European Commission. And I think both as the first woman, but also in contrast to, to Jean-Claude Juncker, who was a different type of, of very gregarious politician, she is much more subtle, especially than he is. She's a subtle politician. He liked to provoke. He liked to poke. Whereas she comes in much more low-key. But the message uh, to Russia, for example, is clear. And that, you know, she's checking names. She's taking notice. A message to China where she talked about it as a, as an, a strategic rival, again, is the, the phrase that the EU is using, but as an economic competitor, never saying friend. So I think we're learning that she's a subtle politician. Um, she's a careful politician. Uh, definitely, uh, Andrew, as you're saying, center right, more to the center, but also uh, clearly focused on 
hitting these priorities, not just for her in the EU, but also for several references to the importance of, of the parliament. And again, the personal element that she brings. I mean, we uh, didn't mention that she comes to this uh, State of the Union speech with a new uh, nominee for an Irish commissioner. That brings her to near if uh, Mairead McGuinness is approved, which we expect to near parity of men and women uh, in the European Commission. And I think on those equity issues, we learned that that's not just for show. She really believes uh, mm. in those points. Yeah, I, I would say I've, I've read, you know, we obviously followed the speech in real time. And then I sort of sat down and, and just read it last night to try and kind of get an, an overall sense of it. And it does uh, strike me as quite certainly centrist. And of, of course, one of the things about uh, which we've discussed before, is that she's from the centre-right, um, but the kind of majority that sustains her or the majority that she needs to get things down in the parliament tilts a bit more to the left. And so it felt like, again, this speech reflected that kind of centre of gravity, which, you know, in kind of American political terms, I think a lot of people would describe as as quite liberal, but not particularly liberal in an economic sense. I mean, she talked right at the start about the limits of a model that values wealth above well-being. And there are quite a lot of themes, as you said, David, she talked about the importance of a minimum wage. Um, You know, she was very uh, outspoken on some social issues as well. So I certainly feel like we're, we're learning a bit more about her. And obviously part of this is playing to the audience, but as much as it reflects her as a politician, it does feel like we're discovering that she's very much, I guess, in the Merkel mold, but perhaps even a little bit more kind of, radical, you might say, on social policy, unlike Angela Merkel, who's a very, you know, cautious politician. You know, the one thing also that really struck me is that to me, it reveals that she is a doer. She's someone who, you know, wants to sort of make it an effective commission. She wants to be able to deliver on things. And it was very interesting how, you know, she has a very clear view of the few things that she really wants to get done. And she framed them in a way that was ambitious, but also feasible. And her positioning on human rights is actually very significant because it's one area when you think about sort of the international uh, world or context where the EU really is and should be a leader, if not the leader. And I think she's understood that and she's taken that on board. Definitely, as you say, an, an understated uh, politician, a doer. She's a, she was a minister, uh, you know, a three-time minister in the German government. Uh, she's not the, the kind of politician that's out there, you know, kissing everybody on the head. That, that's not her style. <laughs> yeah. And given, uh, you know, given social distancing at the moment, probably, probably for the best, probably not to be advised <laughs> by the World Health Organization. Okay. Uh, Reem, thanks very much. David, Thank just stay you. with us for uh, one more moment and you can introduce our next feature, which is the interview with the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. So we were over at the U.S. embassy in Brussels, which is quite a compound, lots of security. But we were in Whitlock Hall uh, in our Nate building, normally uh, lots of cocktail parties, receptions, a lot of diplomatic uh, handshaking, kissing, hugging going on. In any event, we sat down uh, with Ambassador Gidrit in, uh, in our Nate room, had a little bit of coffee, talked about the world and his unusual circumstances where he already had one diplomatic hat on as U.S. ambassador to Belgium. Then in May, at the height of uh, lockdown measures, asked to put on a second hat as the acting permanent representative to the EU, replacing Gordon Sondland, who, of course, was fired by Donald Trump uh, in retaliation for his testimony in the Ukraine impeachment mess. Uh, And we talked about trade. We talked about uh, EU relations, Iran, lots of issues that uh, the US and EU don't see eye to eye on. But he said there are also quite a few bright spots that maybe aren't getting noticed. 
Okay, so you started out talking about the mini US-EU trade deal agreed in August. Let's hear what he had to say about that. It's hard to believe that we, the United States, have not had a real agreement on paper for 20 years. And so that's, I think, real progress. And it marks, I believe, publicly an indication that this administration is intent upon working through the various trade difficulties that we have. Look, it's not an easy problem to solve. The goods deficit between the U.S. and the European Union is roughly $170 billion. And that's not a sustainable situation over time. The president has really focused on how do we begin to get that trade deficit down. And this is the first tangible step. For folks who hadn't heard about it, tell us a little bit about the nuts and bolts, the basics. What was in that deal? What have you described for people as the benefits? I don't have all the nuts and bolts myself, but basically what it is, is it's reducing the tariffs on lobsters, which is a northeastern U.S. agricultural product. And in return, it's crystal glassware, cigarette lighters, and a variety of other relatively small items. But what's important is we have a deal. And I would also point out that basically it's a revenue neutral deal as opposed to something that really affects the trade deficit that's existent. We hear a lot these days, and we'll talk more about the differences in perspectives, but let's start on a bright spot. What would you point to as the more optimistic aspects of the transatlantic relationship? You know, one of the interesting things is we talk about having a bright spot or two. The reality is we have many, many bright spots. We work together in so many areas that are unsung, if you will. People don't realize. We also are working in lockstep with the European Union, as you probably are aware, on China. China is a strategic competitor for all of us, and both the European Union and we agree that uh, we need to work together to ensure that the rules-based world that we created together some 70-plus years ago continues, because that is not, it would appear, the goal of the Chinese Communist Party, to be specific. You talk about what else do we have that we can point to that's a high point. I think the immediate response, both of the European Union and the United States, to the catastrophe in Lebanon, for example. On um, Belarus, too, where there's so many differences sometimes on foreign policy these days that there's been a clearly articulated message that sounds very similar. One difference being, as the U.S. never lifted sanctions on on Belarus, now the EU is working to catch back up. As you've got, as you notice, we've got 16 people in the Belarus sanctioned, and those sanctions will stay in place, and we're talking to the European Union about and coordinating additional sanctions. The, the reality is that we and the European Union believe that the citizens of Belarus have a right to make their own minds up in terms of how they're governed. And to have Lukashenko just summarily steal an election and deprive the citizens of the right of self-determination is wrong. There need to be free elections. The peaceful protesters need to be released from jail. And the people need to make their own determination. Let me ask you one that that I'm really curious about. This is where where sometimes I think folks don't appreciate how how difficult, delicate, tricky diplomacy can be. It's It's a Brexit question. The UK has proposed legislation that would pick apart some of the withdrawal agreement that they reached last year. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has issued some very, very loud and clear warnings 
that if that treaty is abrogated, there will be no trade deal that will get through her Congress for the UK. I imagine your counterparts in the EU, the EU27, are quite happy to hear that and appreciate that message from the Democratic House Speaker. It's not necessarily the position of the President of the United States. How do you navigate that when they... Let me just say that we are negotiating an agreement with the UK. We've been in several rounds of negotiation. Uh, To my knowledge, the negotiations have been fruitful, but we have a ways to go. And I think it's a little early for anybody to make a determination as to whether or not and how Brexit will take place. It's clear that Brexit will take place. I think it behooves all of us to wait and see how what actually happens as opposed to making threats. Right. So if they if they thank you for the speaker's words, do you just sort of nod along and say, yeah, you're welcome. I am not responding <laughs> to those kinds of comments. But you don't have people try, asking you to, to sort of explain. Look, we have, we have three co-equal branches of government. They That's all the have points of view. And we are a free country that allows people to make statements. Whether or not the Speaker of the House will ultimately make that decision is one that will be taken next year. So I think it behooves all of us to wait to see what happens. Since you bring up next year, between now and then, of course, there's an election in November. I don't think it's any secret. There are a lot of folks here in the European Union wishing, rooting, either quietly or not so quietly for a change in the White House, just because of the differences in perspectives that we've seen, whether it's on uh, the Paris Accords or on the JCPOA. I mean, big ticket disagreements. Should they be rooting against Donald Trump at this point? I don't think any of those folks who are positioning themselves have a vote. I think we need to leave this decision to the American people to make that determination. Just as I know the Europeans don't care to have us, the Americans, involved in their election process, it's probably not a good idea for anybody here to get involved in ours. They all counted Donald Trump out in 2016, but yet here he is, so we'll see. If it's good for the Belarusians, it's, uh, it's good for the Americans. Let them have I, their I, say. I, 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 I don't know that I would uh, comment on that. Are you confident, as someone who does get to vote, are you confident that there will be a free and fair election in the United States, given the debate going back and forth and the concerns, whether it's about the Postal Service or the, you know, from the spokes of the CDC or any of these places saying that they suspect fraud at a vast scale on either side, that an election result might not be accepted or... No, I don't. I'm not concerned about it at all. I I think there's some different issues today than there were in previous elections. I mean, the fact that we are locked down creates different issues. I think the Postal Service issue was a red herring. Postal Service is perfectly capable of handling billions and billions of pieces of mail on a timely basis. So that's not, in my view, an issue. The real issue is the significantly large number of paper ballots that will be generated here. And as you probably are aware, there's been a major effort since 2016 to convert the uh, election process to electronics. So all of a sudden, we have a system that is essentially geared for electronic voting, and we're going to have a wave of paper ballots merely by the fact that they're going to come in by mail. I think that's where you're going to have the problem. But ultimately, I would guess that there may be a delay in getting the results out, but it will certainly be free and fair. 
There's no question in my mind, having actually run elections myself in Chicago over the years, this will be free and fair because that's what people want. Just going back to the eastern part of Europe, President Trump has long complained about Nord Stream 2. And now after the Navalny poisoning, there seems to be some potential shifting among the Europeans on that. And yet we've also heard the president say there's no proof yet that Navalny was poisoned. I mean, is he, is he maybe missing an opportunity there to say, you know, hey, yes, he was poisoned and yes, let's, let's kill this, uh, I, I, I think this the project evidence, once and for all? I think the evidence is pretty clear. The evidence that the Germans have produced makes it very clear that this is a weapons-grade, illegal poison that the only entity that has ever created it has been the Soviet Union made it, the Russians have it, the Russians used it before, as we know. And so this is very clearly an attempt by Putin to silence one of his foremost critics. Thank goodness that he didn't die. But I think it underscores the frailty of the relationship that particularly Germany has with Russia. The gas pipelines, be it the Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, or Turk Stream, They're not intended by Russia to be a commercial venture. This is an opportunity to create a dependency for Europe and particularly for Germany that can be orchestrated in future years. I mean, just remember what happened a number of years ago when the Ukraine was shut off. In the middle of winter, the Russians decided that they didn't like what the Ukraine was doing. They shut off the gas for two months. That's a problem. And as an ally of Germany, as a supporter of the European Union, for us to see that the Russians are going to have that kind of lever over Western Europe, it's tragic and it's wrong. And we are opposed to it. Categorically, unequivocally, we're opposed to it. And it's not us. It's the Europeans that are going to be held hostage. And is that the kind of thing that people want? When we think about crimes like this, an alleged crime... No, it's not alleged. This is a crime. So... And, and right at large, right? We, comparisons to Salisbury, where we know the UK was very clear in its determination that Russian agents had attempted to use the same type of Novichok agent. The idea that indeed crime crosses borders and sometimes there are state actors responsible. And yet we see Washington and the United States putting the prosecutor and the deputy prosecutor of the International Criminal Court under sanction. How do you explain that? to your counterparts here, if if they said, do you want the U.S. to be immune if it commits war crimes? Shouldn't Americans be held to the same standards as every other? I would just point out to you that we have never been a signatory to the International Criminal Court. We have had, from the very beginning of its formation, uh, concerns about the politicization of that court. And so we don't support it. We have objected to it. We think that many of their decisions are political and therefore we do not want any of our citizens to be subject to it. And it's got nothing to do with whether or not we support criminality. We categorically, clearly do not. We just do not also support institutions that are essentially political in nature as opposed to judicial in nature. On Iran, are you surprised at how resilient they, the E3, as well as China and Russia, have been in defending that agreement despite President Trump's withdrawal, and and we know they're running the clock, another example of potentially hoping for one sort of result in November. It's hanging by a thread. Look, ever since President Trump came to office, he's been very clear, as have many people before he 
was elected, that JCPOA was a problem. We and the European Union and the signatories to JCPOA do not have a disagreement in ultimate aims. We just have a problem with the process. And therefore, we have withdrawn or in the process of withdrawing from JCPOA because Iran is continuing to be a bad actor. At least from our standpoint, it's surprising that the other signatories are willing to stand by on the theory that this is going to make the world safer over the long term. I don't see it. Understanding your point about American citizens should have their say in the election, the the world has a stake. And what do you say to counterparts who really worry about a second term of the Trump administration, that Trump unbound, Trump as a not-so-lame duck, so to speak, will quit NATO, will not just withdraw from something like the Paris Climate Accords, but sort of rampage through issue after issue, wreaking havoc on world affairs? If, if you take a look at the platform in which President Trump ran, lower taxes, focus on defense, reduce regulation that was constraining business, withdraw from or reduce the presence in Iraq, Afghanistan. Most of the issues that the president ran on, he's been intent upon fulfilling. He has never said that he is going to abrogate the American responsibility to defend freedom. We have longstanding transatlantic partnerships, which he supports. His problem with NATO, for example, was not that we need to withdraw. It was that we had partners that were not fulfilling their partnership obligations. And quite candidly, even today, we have partners who are not fulfilling their partnership obligations. Part of our job as diplomats is to talk to our partners, encourage our partners to fulfill their obligations. Because what kind of an arrangement is it when you have a partnership where one or two or five partners don't fulfill the commitments that they make. And that's the problem that President Trump has, is when you make a deal, and he's a deal maker, keep the deal. And if the deal isn't being kept, then we shouldn't keep our side and the other side abrogated. Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is giving a State of the European Union speech this week, her first. You, you get to watch from an independent vantage point. How's the state of the European Union looking to you these days? I think the state of the world is, in fact, got a great deal of difficulty. The COVID-19 pandemic have created a set of problems that nobody really has had the opportunity to deal with before. The financial crisis was just that. It was a financial crisis. This is a humanitarian crisis. It's a healthcare crisis. And it's a financial crisis. And you add to that all the other things that have been going on right along So she's got her hands full. President Trump's got his hands full. Boris Johnson has his hands full. And needless to say, we all who support these elected public officials are working hard to help them. Is it a really bad time to be a leader? It's a momentous time, right? It's a lot of responsibility uh, for all of these political leaders. I, I think it's exciting. I think you have an opportunity to try different things. For sure, some of them aren't necessarily going to work. But what you do know for certain is that the roadmap is unclear. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate the opportunity to have the chance to talk to you and your listeners. And I look forward to having the opportunity again. Thanks so very much. 
And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Just click subscribe or follow depending on the app you use so you never miss an episode. And please take a moment right now to rate us by clicking some stars or even leaving a review. It helps other people find the show. We're also always keen to hear your feedback via email. If you liked an interview, a topic, or really didn't, if you have ideas for future shows, do drop us a line. The address is podcast at political.eu. Ryan Heath will be here on Tuesday with the latest episode in our pop-up series on the US elections. And we'll be back again as usual with EU Confidential next Thursday. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer Christina Gonzalez and to Wei Dong Lin. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>